four, three, two, one. Hi, this is Willie Tyler. This is Lester. You're listening to Gilbert Godfrey's amazing, colossal podcast. There it is. Nice. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, guys. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a musician, an Oscar-winning singer-songwriter, an Emmy and Tony-nominated performer, and one of the busiest, most versatile and most admired actors of his generation. You've seen him in popular TV shows like Deadwood, Criminal Minds, Dexter, Damages, Fargo, and the current hit, Madam Secretary, as well as on the Broadway stage in Hair, Foxfire, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and the Will Rogers Follies. But he's probably best known to audiences for his fine work in some of the more memorable movies of the last five decades, including McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Duelist, Thieves, The Thieves Like Us, I'm sorry, (laughs) The Duelist, Thieves Like Us, Pretty Baby, Welcome to L.A., Wild Bill, The Long Riders, Cowboys and Aliens, and of course has the womanizing Tom Frank in one of the most defining films of the 1970s, Robert Altman's Nashville. In a very long and very distinguished career, he shared the screen with the likes of Kirk Douglas, Lee Marvin, Warren Beatty, Vanessa Redgrave, Rod Steiger, and Albert Finney, and worked with iconic directors such as Altman, Alan Rudolph, Walter Hill, Sam Fuller, Louis Mal, and Ridley Scott. Please welcome one of our favorite actors, an artist of many talents, and I've always wanted to say this, the son of Dracula, <laughs> Keith Carradine. <laughs> Listen, listening to that, I, I, I feel like, I feel like I'm, I'm really something, man. <laughs> I, I had no idea. <laughs> See, I, I always feel like those intros should be followed with Found dead in his Los Angeles apartment. <laughs> you know what? I mean, one of these days, that could be it. You know, uh, I, I, I hope I'm in my home and not a Los Angeles apartment. But uh, you know, now, hey man, now, listen, let me let me get this out of the way. In okay, front. okay, okay. I'm a huge I'm a huge fan, and and uh, 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 the aristocrats, Gilbert. Yes. you are in my estimation. You are the gold standard. 
in terms of the telling of that particular joke of all jokes. Uh, you're a god, man, and 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 I and I cannot tell you what an honor it is to be able to to meet you and, and speak with you here in your in your uh, world. How about that, Gil? Well, now that I've gotten that compliment, we don't need to interview you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Hey, I'm cool, man. I can go yeah. with something. <laughs> and. I I remember this is a boring thing to to turn it about me. I I worked with your your brother David. Yeah. Hosted Saturday Night Live once. Davy? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I did not know he 1980 ever is that around? Oh uh, yeah. 7980. And and they uh I remember at first they wrote bits for him that he was ready to have fun. Yeah. And then they came up with this dumb idea that he'd play the kung fu character in each sketch <laughs> and wander in and out. And and by the first minute, you knew it wasn't working. And that was it. But at the end of the show, I was standing there for the good nights. I look up in the balcony and there's your father, John Carradine. Yep. Sitting there, like leaning yep. his weight on a cane. And I just thought that was magical seeing him there. Yeah. He uh, he had an extraordinary career, an amazing life. Um, hey, man, I, I come from, uh, you know, this sort of uh, Hollywood. Uh, I guess it's there's a there's an element of dynasty about it, sure. I suppose, on, on some level, you know. But uh, the old man, man, he was he was the first, you know, and uh uh, as my brother David liked to say, uh, because of him, uh, you know, we all stand ten feet taller than we would have otherwise. So, wow! And you know, you're kicking yourself for not going up there and meeting John Kerry. Oh yeah, yeah. He's such a horror fan, uh, uh, Keith. We've we've you know we've had Bela Lugosi's son on the show, and we had Sarah Karloff's, uh, yeah. uh, Boris Karloff's daughter here, and Lon Chaney Jr.'s grandson. Yeah, we talk a lot about the Universal Classics. You know, and- it's interesting, yeah, and, and, and remember remember um, 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 uh, uh, Landau's performance. Oh, sure. Martin oh, Landau's great. performance in Ed Wood. Yeah. And, and which, for, for which he won uh, his Oscar, a yes, supporting actor well Oscar. Well deserved. And 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 when he his physicality in that role, I thought, I wonder if Marty knew my dad because in my father's later years, his arthritis rendered him. You know, uh, it changed the way he moved yes. and walked, and in particular, the the walk that he had. I, I looked at Landau in Ed Wood, and I thought, Hey, man, he's doing my dad's walk toward the end of his life. It was an interesting, uh, interesting thing to to see. Did know? you ever ask if there was a connection there? If he knew, I never he... got the chance. Oh, you know, I met bad. Marty. Uh, I met Marty a few years later uh, uh, when he was still around, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there with him. You know, he, he's... I, I I like your dad's Dracula. It's more of a kind of a a, 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 a stylized champagne Dracula, almost like what well, Lan, what Langella did with the character. Kind of, and my yeah. father was particularly proud of the fact that he 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 made his Dracula physically his physical appearance was he said exactly what Stoker had written in the book. Oh, the mustache. Yes, yes, all yeah. of that. So, so you know, it was and, the most true to the most true to Stoker's uh, mm-hmm. description. But for some reason, well, I guess he was hiding the fact that he was Dracula, even though he's wearing a cape and the medallion <laughs> yes, and turning right. into a bat. <laughs> Yeah, but and, apart from that, who would have been? Yeah, yeah. It was like, <laughs> uh, do you remember what his name was? 
in the House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. My father's name? Yes. It wasn't no. Dracula. He didn't call himself Dracula. Oh, he wasn't Count Dracula. He, he would what go, was it? He would go, I am Baron Latos. <laughs> yes. No way. Yeah, Baron, that was Baron Lactos. Baron Lactos. <laughs> and he <it> was. <laughs> Meanwhile, he dressed like Dracula. So did he drink milk? I mean. Yeah, oh, yes. He's, <laughs> he's intolerant. He's almost a Shakespearean Dracula. You know, I well, know yeah, a, he was man, a Shakespeare buff. Was a, he was a great student of the Bard. I mean, that was his great love with Shakespeare. You know, he was a Shakespearean actor first and foremost. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he wound up in the movies uh, really by chance. I mean, he came out here to Hollywood uh, looking to be an actor. Uh, but he was also, he was an accomplished portrait sculptor. Yes. He had studied in New York with William Chester French. And, and, and in fact, he met DeMille, Cecil B. DeMille, because he was commissioned to do a bust of DeMille. And while he and while Demille was sitting for him, uh, while my father was working on the on the initial uh, phases of that sculpture, uh, Demille heard his speaking voice and asked if he was an actor. And and my father said, "Yes, I am." And he said, "I'm doing a film." And my father, in his usual <laughs> highfalutin way, I mean, my dad could be a bit of a snob, and uh, he said, "No, Mr. Demille, I'm a theater actor. I'm, uh, you know." And uh, but uh, you know that that soon. Uh, that, that that fell by the wayside, and and his first film was DeMille's Sign of the Cross. Right. I, yeah. I read that he designed sets for him for five minutes, and that didn't work out. Uh, that may be true. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not aware of that particular yeah. story, but uh, yeah. you know, I heard a few. Uh, and he's he, he sculpted he was, as well. Uh, yeah, he, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a sculptor, a portrait sculptor. He made his way across the country doing uh, uh, sketch portraits of people's. You know, he would do a portrait uh, in pencil, and uh, his deal was it was a dollar. Uh, and if you didn't uh, approve of the likeness, you didn't have to pay for it. And it was a great source of pride for him that no one ever stiffed him. Everyone agreed to give him the dollar after they saw the work. So he was very proud of that. <laughs> and uh, and he worked as a watchman on a banana tree. And I think it was between El Paso and, and uh, Los Angeles. That's how, that's how he made the final leg of the journey across the country. And then he wound up uh, doing odd jobs. He, he was a film dryer for, at one point. Uh-huh. And he talked about you know crawling into the back seats of cars that were unlocked on Hollywood Boulevard and sleeping for the night because he didn't have a place to live. On one, of, on one occasion, he was awakened by, a, you know, this guy got into his car having no idea that there was a man asleep in the back seat. <laughs> and the guy started the car up and, uh, and my dad shot up and said, whoa, and the guy was, you know, he was scared to death. What the, what the hell? <laughs> this is my car. Uh, you know, that, those were the, I guess those were he, what he referred to as his salad days. I'm never sure, where, where does that expression come from? Anyway? That's a good Why question. Call it your salad days? <laughs> Because I appreciate a good salad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, salad days are good. Those are good days. So, <laughs> yeah, you'd think it was stale bread days or something. Yeah, did, or did something. he? Did he, Keith? Did he audition? There's the varying varying stories on uh, on the internet about whether he ever officially auditioned for the 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 monster and also for the for the count before Lugosi got the part. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. It's interesting. Um, uh, but he certainly, uh, listen, I mean, he, he did those films, um, uh, the horror films that my dad participated in, most of the, those happened uh, in, in, from the late 40s and mm-hmm. through the 50s. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, he had started off, he was, he was a highly respected and, and desired character actor. And, uh, you know, as he would say, he's, you people would ask him and he would say, well, you know, I've, 
I've been in some of the best films ever made and some of the worst. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, he did what he had to do. He, he, was, he had a bunch of kids to feed, you know. He, sure. had, he kept us fed and clothed and a roof over our heads. And, and to do that, uh, he, he made a lot of films that, uh, you know, he wasn't necessarily, he, he knew they were, they were crap for the most part. But uh, it's a huge part of his legacy, you know. And uh, we do what we have to do, man, right? I mean, we do what we have to do. Of and, then, uh, and then people remember us or they don't, you know? I mean, I think it's a great sort of I- ironic tragedy that when Richard Harris checked out, they said Dumbledore is dead. I mean, my God, look oh, at that guy's course. body of work, you know, from, from the sporting life to, you know. Oh, everything. Uh, everything. Camelot. Yes. I mean. I, I remember seeing John Carradine in a movie, one of his lesser ones later on. Yeah. And he's the narrator. He keeps popping in in between stories uh-huh. to give a dramatic reading of what's coming up. And you could see he's palming a cigarette <laughs> in his hand. It's yeah. like he was so aware he was doing a piece of shit. <laughs> He wouldn't even put the cigarette down for it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I came across, recently I came across an old interview when he he did the Dick Cavett show. And, you know, that was, I think it was the early 70s maybe. It might have been the late 60s. I'm not, I think it was the early 70s. Um, and, you know, it was a different time, man. And he's sitting there with a smoke, you know, mm-hmm. on the air. Oh, they all you know? smoked on the air then. Yeah. And you could see the clouds of smoke wafting through and, uh, you know, while he was talking. It was interesting, though. It was a f- f- great thing to come across because it was him just sitting and chatting with Cavett, you know. And, and Cavett, was, he was a good interviewer. He's a smart guy. And, and uh, you know, uh, it was fun to see that snippet of my dad uh, after all these years. I mean, he's been gone since 88, uh, so... You know, I miss him, and and uh, particularly because he was an older guy when I was born. Um, you know, mostly I got a lot of stories, but some of them were the, the kind of stories that he told to Cavett, and uh, it was it was it was it was a good thing to come across. He he breaks your heart in the in the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, oh my! And, and just and I was watching today. I was watching uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. It yeah, makes, it makes the great speech. Oh, I know you've introduced those films too. I have. Yeah. And they're just to, just to watch him in those Ford pictures. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and a handsome man too. I was watching Stagecoach over the weekend. He was, he was a good looking guy. Yes, man. a good looking dude. You know, he had a good face. You yes, know? Uh, absolutely. The absolutely. film that really broke him out was was a Prisoner of Shark Island. Sure, I remember where he that one too. The Jailer, and I hadn't seen that. I knew of it, but I hadn't seen it. And it was I don't know twenty thirty years ago. I suddenly came across it, and I sat and watched. And my dad's work in that movie. I thought, whoa, um, this is modern work. This isn't, there's nothing dated about what he's doing. Um, it was incredibly, uh, right now. And, uh, I thought, you know, man, he had it, yeah. you know, and I, I, I know he, he, he did a lot of theater and, and he loved the, he loved Shakespeare and, uh, he had his own Shakespearean rep company. And I really recently came across a bunch of photographs of him from that era in, in all of the different roles, you know, um, I, I wish I, I did. I know I saw him give his last performance of Hamlet, uh, and by then he was in his fifties. And I think I was six years old, and uh, and I fell asleep, of course, because I was six. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, he played but, everything. Uh, he played Scrooge. Uh, he played. Uh, he did. Played, yeah, he, he versatile, did. versatile. And yeah. he pops up in at least two old classic horror films. Yep, for like one line each. Uh-huh. In, Bride oh, in the Bride of Frankenstein, of course, right? It's the monster. Yeah, 
<laughs> and you, yeah. you got to act with him, Keith. I did a few times. Yeah. Um, oh, the first occasion was uh, I had just finished uh, Hair in New York. I did uh, Hair on Broadway. for That was my first gig. I did, did that from uh, March of 69 to February of 70. And it was after that I'd come back to California, and uh, I had met Robert Altman. And I was about to go up and do uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, and my dad was, uh, you know, I had a month or two, uh, and my dad was uh, uh, doing a dinner theater production of Tobacco Road at the Alhambra Dinner Theater in Jacksonville, Florida. And he invited me to come and play Dude. Now, this was one of his old chestnuts that he would pull out of the trunk, and mm-hmm. he would do this from time to time in different places. One of his favorite roles. And uh, and he had a couple of uh, actors that he'd worked with over the years, uh, um, um I'm going to forget her name now. Georgia Simmons, who played Ada. Um, and she was by then in her 80s, I think. Um, and I went down there and did this production of Tobacco Road with him until I had to leave to go and uh, start work on uh, on uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller up in Vancouver. And when I left, uh, it was, I think there were still two weeks left in the run, my brother Bobby took over my role. And that was the first time Bobby acted wow. on the stage. Yeah. Did you learn anything watching him up close, being being out there with him every night? Yeah, that was a lesson every day, every moment, I'm every sure. second. I'm sure. You know? And it was really interesting because he had a very strict sense of protocol and how things are properly done as a professional actor in the theater anywhere. And at one point I asked him for advice about some moment that I had in the play. And he said, if you want to talk about your performance in this play, in this part, you go and you speak to the director. Interesting. Yeah. 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 He was a purist. And, you know, I... Yeah, he was a purist. Yeah. And, and, and if I learned nothing else from him, I learned, listen, temperament is nothing more than bad manners. He said that. Yeah, I love that. He had no patience with temperamental actors. None. Yeah. No, there's no place for it. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then he said, uh, know your lines and pick up your clothes at the end of the day and hang them up. You know, show respect for your fellow workers. Every, everyone's involved in the, in the making of or the performance of whatever it is. You're all working together. And no one is any more important than anyone else. And I've never forgotten that. I can't think of an actor who, is, if, you, if you go to IMDb and look at his page. and we've Oh, done my a, gosh. We've had 200 guests on this show. We do a, a lot of research about those yep. guests and people those guests have worked with. And I'm constantly going to IMDb. I have not seen any performer or any, anyone involved in filmmaking. With more credits than John Carradine. No, and, it's and hundreds IMDb, and hundreds. You know, exactly. And, and as good as they are, they don't always get it right, and they don't have all of his. No, he I'm credited sure. himself. His count, his personal count, was 512 films. Wow. They have, they have 321. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah, there you it's go. Inadequate. And he said the only actor in Hollywood who had more credits than he in the motion picture business was Donald Crisp. But he said that Crisp. <laughs> He said it shouldn't count with Donald Crisp because a lot of Crisp's credits were two reelers. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so there was a qualification there to that. Right? And, and I remember as a kid being very excited watching the Munsters <laughs> and yeah. John Carradine as Herman Boss. And you know what? He had a, actually, uh, he, he was supposed to audition for that role. And at the time, he was shooting the Patsy with Jerry Lewis, and Jerry wouldn't let him leave to go do the audition. Yeah. And my dad was always, he was pissed off about that for the rest of his life. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, uh, But he also said that no one could have played that part as well as Fred Gwynn played it. He said, there's no way I would have done what Fred did. What a compliment. 
Wow. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. You know, he said, because Fred had a sweetness. And he said, and I would not have brought that to the role. And he said that, that Fred Gwynn was, was absolutely the right guy to play but, that But part. he wanted to be Herman Munster. He did. No, he wanted, yeah. he wanted the shot, you know? Yeah. It was yeah. a good gig. I mean, he just wanted to work, you know? Now, what did John, did John Carradine ever say anything about Jerry Lewis? Well, you listen, I mean, he had obviously great respect for him, yes. you know. But, but you know, it was, it was kind of, he, he thought that was low, you know. That Jerry <laughs> yeah, didn't give not him a let break him out. And give, him, give him enough time to go out and audition for this role, you know. Let's talk. But, you know, let's talk about McCabe and Mrs. Millikeet since you brought it up. Sure, and it was sort absolutely. of it was kind of the thing that put you on the map. It wasn't your yep. first picture. No, but it did put me on the map. That was Robert Altman, and it was funny. I heard about the role. Um, I had come back from from doing hair in New York, and uh, I had done uh, the gunfight, mm-hmm. uh, a gunfight with Kirk Douglas and Johnny Cash. That was actually my first feature. But I heard about this role, and they sent me over to meet Robert Altman in, in Westwood. And uh, he had his Lionsgate films, which he had set up, and he had offices in Westwood in this little complex of uh, buildings with a little courtyard in the middle. And they said, uh, Mr. Altman's upstairs at the back. Just go up those stairs and, and knock on the door. And he had an apartment up there that I guess he would use from time to time to stay in the city if he didn't feel like driving out to the beach. And I knocked on the door, and, uh, and uh, he said, come in. And, and I opened the door. And there he stood. He was standing there in a T-shirt and a bathrobe. I remember the white T-shirt underneath in this bathrobe. And he was unwrapping, unwrapping a, a brown paper-wrapped package. He says, come on in, come on in. I'm just unwrapping this. I just got back from Columbia. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, is, 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 this a, is this a couple of keys? You know, what's, what's he bringing back from Columbia? And, and then he said, he said, I was at the film festival down there, and I bought some pre-Columbian art. And I'm just, and I thought, oh, okay. And in fact, that's what it was, you know. And he, he looked at me, and he said, so I'm making this Western. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, did you read it? And I said, uh-huh. And he said, uh, do, you, do, you, do you like the part? And I said, yeah. And he said, you want to do it? And I said, sure. And he said, okay. That was my audition. Never auditioned you. That's great. No, but he never auditioned anyone. And I had really long hair because I had been growing my hair since I went to New York to do hair, you know. And I had this hair that was, you know, well past my shoulders. And he said, I like the hair. Let's keep that. Let's keep that. And in fact, his having said that, when I went off to do Tobacco Road with my dad in Florida, I thought, well, <clears throat> I can't have the hair for that role because I'm playing this, you know, country bumpkin out in, 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 in Appalachia. Um, so I went down to Hollywood Boulevard before I went to Florida, and I, I went to some wig store on Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> and I bought this wig. <laughs> and I put it on, and I thought, yeah, this will work. And I actually wore it on my trip down there thinking, I'll just see how well this works and if anybody notices I'm wearing a wig, you know. Well, it was absurd. <laughs> I mean, it was a terrible wig. But I thought I was looking good, man. I thought I was getting away with it. I come out of the airport and, my, and, and Bobby had driven down there with my dad. They were sitting in my dad's caddy. He had this uh, like a 68 Cadillac or something, convertible. And they're sitting out in front when I walk out the door. And I get in the car and my dad took, takes one look at me. He says, are you wearing a wig? That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and then, of course, I finally get up to Vancouver. I drive up there. Um, I had my first car, which I bought with my tax return. I think I got a $1,400 refund from the IRS for my year in hair. And I took $1,000 of that, and I bought a 1960 Corvette. This was 1970, so it was 10 years old. I bought a 60 Corvette, and uh, and I drove that 
up to Vancouver. And I'll never forget driving up through this new sort of tracked housing development. And then you get up to the top and the houses stopped and you went around the corner and there were a couple of hillsides and sort of a parking area. And there was a little guard house. And I got out of the car and I walked up to the guard house and the guy had my name. He said, yeah, go in straight there, go to the, walk around the corner, go to your left. And uh, they want you, they want you in the makeup trailer. And there was this long trailer and I walked around the corner and it was magical because suddenly there in the wilds of British Columbia was a turn of the century, circa 1901, frontier mining town Fantastic. that was that was actually rising from the mists in there. It was amazing, magical. You were, it was a, uh, suddenly it was a hundred years ago. It was amazing. And I walked in, sat down in the makeup trailer. Altman comes in, he says, hey kid. Uh, yeah. He says, uh, welcome. Glad, glad you're here. Uh, here, sit down over here. I sit down and he says, uh, cut his hair off. And I was absolutely heart sick. I thought, God, my hair. He said he wanted my hair. I was really attached to that hair. Man. It was like kind of a, you know, it was 1970. It was a badge. It was like my identity. And he took one look at my face and he said, kid, if that's where your ego is, it's in the wrong place. Wow. Oh, Never forgot. Man. Never forgot that. Wow. You know, it's a, it's, it's a small role, but it's a showy role. Well, it's a it's really a, good part. It's a pivotal part in the, yes. mo- in the movie. Yeah. And it, what a beautiful film, by the way. Amazing film. Yeah. It was Vilmo Sigmund and, oh. you know, Warren Beatty and Julie Christie and everyone else, you know, that, but what, what became known as Altman's repertory group. Yes. You know, John, actors. John Shuck and all yeah. those people. And the, all those amazing people. You know, and, and what, Warren, William Devane. Warren was, uh, he couldn't have been sweeter. He was just... Couldn't have been nicer to me. Julie was amazing. Because you're a kid actor at this point. And I was like, I was 20. 20 years old. Yeah, 20 years old. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I'm going away. Stop it, you. (laughs) And, And aside from learning from your father, you said in an interview... You worked with Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. Yeah, that was my master class. Yeah. Working with them, that was my master class. Absolutely. You know, when I first decided I was going to do this, I was in high school. And uh, I decided, well, I'm going to be a proper actor. And I'm going to write a letter. And I'm going to uh, submit my application. And I'm going to go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Well, that did not happen. Um, for whatever, uh, any number of reasons. Uh, maybe I didn't, I don't know. I, the money, the going there, uh, not being actually good enough to get in, uh, that could have been a factor. Anyhow, I did not do that. And uh, when I wound up in that play with Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy, um, that was, that, I considered that my my uh, my recompense for not actually having gone to, to RADA. Yeah. You know, I got to spend, uh, you know, a year on Broadway and then another year or, or another several months, actually, uh, between Den- Denver and Los Angeles doing that play with those two actors. And uh, it was uh, a lesson every second. I'll never forget it. And, and you said how she turned, she was old when oh, she... Oh, Jesse was, by then she was in her 70s. Um, and she was playing, actually, she played older than she really was physically. I mean, she was an incredibly vital, beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful woman and in her 70s. And this, the nature of the story was, you know, she's alone. She's lost her husband, but he's a ghost. So Hume is there as, as this ghost who haunts her and with whom she has these conversations and she argues. And, and there is a moment in the play where they flash back to their youth 
and when they first met and when he was courting her and they're teenagers. And Jessie, when she was playing herself, playing her, her older self in the play, she actually added some age to herself just by dint of posture. She would kind of stoop over a little bit and hunch her shoulders and lower her head and, and, uh, she put probably another 10 or 15 years on herself just by doing that. But there was this moment when suddenly she's supposed to be 17 and she stands up and suddenly she rises up to her full height. She straightens out her body. She had this beautiful posture and still a knockout figure. I mean, she was gorgeous. And she did that and she kind of spun around in a pirouette and she had this sort of house dress that swept down and it came close to the floor, but the breeze from the house dress as, as she spun collected dust from the dirt that had been spread around the stage to make it look like Appalachia. And that dirt was dry and it had a lot of mica in it. And when she made that spin, the dust picked up and the lights from the stage lights and from overhead and from behind picked up that mica and suddenly there she was in in like a cloud of sparkling magic. It was it was an unforgettable moment. And I would watch that every night from the wings. And uh, it'll stay with me to oh, my dying day. A lovely. It was absolutely extraordinary. A wonderful act. I could watch the two of them in anything. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One one last question about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. By the way, you're talking about the stock company, uh, Burt Remsen, yep. uh, Michael Murphy. should mention those, wonder, those wonderful actors that we absolutely. used over and, and over Remsen again. And, and Burt Remsen and, 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 and John Shuck and Shelley Duvall. Uh, that was the Oh, Shelley Duvall. like us. That's right. That's Thieves right. like us when Bob did Use those people. Again. And, and Tom Skerritt, yeah. Again and again. Did he make you do that stunt, Altman? Did he make you fall in the river? When you, yes. On the, yeah. Because you're 20. What the hell? I was 20. <laughs> they, they put a, they, you know, it's a piano. It's called a wire pole. Mm-hmm. And they put, a, they put a harness on you and they hook this thin bit of piano wire and, they, and it's attached to this hook in the middle of your back. And, and which through is attaches to the harness. And then they have a, a spring pulley rigged up through this tree that was behind me and, and over, a, you know, a, a guide. And uh, at the proper moment, uh, you know, the stuck guy flips a switch and it, re- and it releases that spring and it jerks you straight backwards off your feet uh, the way a bullet would knock you back if you were hit by a bullet. And it's a very effective visual and uh, they had broken the ice up a little bit because they, they had it planned for me to go off the bridge and, hit, hit, and land on my back in this pond and go through the ice in the pond. So they did break it up a little bit. I think the ice was a couple of inches thick. Uh, it was real ice. It wasn't yeah. wax, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, they set it up and they did that and they, we shot it and we did it once. And, and I, had a, I think I had a three mil wetsuit top on underneath my wardrobe because it was ice water. I'll never forget that because as soon as I hit that water, you know the sensation you get when you hit cold water. Sure. You can't breathe for one thing. You suddenly realize and I'm, I'm supposed to be holding my breath because I'm supposed to be dead, right? But it, I, I was like, it, I, it was that breath that you get when you're in really cold water, which is, it was like a panting dog, you know? And I was lying in that water trying to be still and they let the camera run and it runs for a good long time in the movie. And then they finally said, cut. And Bob said, get him out of there. And, uh, you know, they yanked me up and pulled me out. And he said, come on, kid, I'll give you a drink, you know. And he took me into his trailer and poured me a stout, a nice stiff, like three fingers of scotch. And, uh, you know, congratulated me on my <laughs> willingness. <laughs> it, 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 it's funny because at 20, I mean, you, you're still a little bit green, even though you come from a Hollywood family. You, 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 oh, I was you very green. Couldn't imagine at that age that the, the, you know, the magnitude of Robert Altman, what, what you, the, the gift you were being given to work with this guy. 
and, you know, and have I him knew, take. I knew he was a big deal because MASH was huge. Right. I mean, it was a major hit. And I was going to work with the guy who made MASH. So I did know that. In terms of being green, yeah, I was very green because I did not grow up on movie sets. Our, our dad kept us away. You know, mm-hmm. I had, you know, I mean, I certainly knew what he did and, and uh, I had an awareness of all of that. And I knew that he was known. Um, I became more aware of that because of my friend's parents. You know, they all knew him and, you know, they would, they would make a deal about it. Um, but I didn't know, I didn't know how movies were made per se. My first time on a movie set on, on, on a gunfight, I didn't know what a mark was. I didn't know what a key light was. It was OJT for me all the way, man, on, on the job training. Uh, you know, the rest is, you know, whatever gifts I had naturally at my disposal. But I had to learn all of that, you know, uh, on the job. Sure. And you were in Pretty Baby. Yeah. And you said, yeah, and there it's a very, it was a difficult part for you because it's, it's kind of pedophilia. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. For all intents and purposes. Um, listen, it was a very uh, delicate subject to begin with. Uh, no one could have handled it more delicately or with more care than Louis Mall did. Um, Brooke was there, uh, she was 11 during the course of most of the shooting. She turned 12 the last week. Her mother was there on the set all the time. Um, there was never anything, uh, uh, there was never anything overtly done, nothing graphic in that movie. It was all, you understood what had happened or what was going to happen, but you didn't see any of that. So it was a movie that approached the subject, I thought, from an incredibly sensitive and artistic place. My task as an actor, I was then in my 30s, um, and I was playing this this odd, odd fellow, this, uh, you know, uh, Belloc, the photographer, mm-hmm. who in actual life was virtually a dwarf. I remember when I met Louis to play the role, I thought, Why? I'm not right for this. But he wanted an essence in very much the same way that Robert Altman would cast essence. I mean, that's how I got that role in in McCabe was that he saw exactly what he wanted the audience to see, the taking of a a completely innocent life, basically, which is the denouement in that film. Oh, it changes the film entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this kid who, it, it, talk about a senseless act of violence, yeah. you know, and that was what Rob, that was what Bob wanted to speak to. And Louis, by the same token, I think that he saw in me uh, a nature or something that would, uh, in the context of those roles in that film, that would do as much as possible to take the curse off of what was actually going on in this ultimate relationship between this 30-year-old, 30-something man and this 12-year-old girl. Um, the only way I knew to approach it as an actor at the time was uh, I just had to become 12. So when I was working with Brooke, in my head, I was my 12-year-old self again. I was just a, a little kid, uh, sixth, sixth grade in school with a crush on this other girl in Very my class. And that was the only way I could wrap my head around it. The film is actually exquisite. It's a really beautiful yes, film. Yes, it is. And beautiful to and, look at, too. And, uh, but it was absolutely, it was certainly daring at the time and, and, uh, um, uh, and not a film that would, that would be made today. It's a real balancing act that you, yeah. that you had to pull off there. Yeah. And speaking of films where you're cast against type, Gilbert and I were talking about the duelists. Uh, and I say cast against type and that it's, it's a film set in Napoleonic France. Yeah. It's a very strange film in that sense. Starring a guy from California and a guy from Brooklyn. Yeah. 
and yet it works. And yet it works. Well, that's Ridley. Uh, obviously, Ridley had a, you know, uh, he had a vision. Uh, he's a real artist. Um, he draws his own storyboards, you know, at least he did then. Didn't know that. Uh, oh, yeah, no, he's a real, uh, he's, he's, got a, he's got a good hand, man. He can draw. And, uh, and, and it was his vision. Um, Frank Tidy was the cinematographer. We had an operator uh, who operated for about the first week of production, and then he just threw up his hands and went home because Ridley would constantly just say, oh, I've got this, and he would sit in and operate, which is, is the European custom. That's much more common there and in England than here. Uh, where a director will also operate if if they have that in their in their bag of tricks, you know. Um, it was an extraordinary experience making the movie. The story was based on this Conrad short story, which we thought was a fiction, but then it turned out we went to Sarla in the uh, in Midi France, which is basically the stomach of France. It's it's where all of the foie gras comes right, from, the truffles. And, and the truffles, yeah. and all of that. And it's, it's funny because I was on the road, man. I was playing clubs with my band when this was coming around, and <laughs> I had met Ridley, and and I was having fun, man. I was I was a sort of a fledgling pop star. I had a hit. <laughs> you had a hit record. <laughs> That's right. I was out there doing that thing, and 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 I remember. I think I was in Chicago, and Ridley called up, and they've been trying to get me to commit to this movie, and I kept saying, eh, I don't know, about two guys who just keep fighting each other. It's kind of boring. You know? And it's, I was an idiot, you know, but I was also having fun playing music. And, and I'll never forget the phone call. Ridley called me and said, so Keith, are you going to do our movie? And I said, ah, Rid, I don't know. He said, Keith, we're shooting in Sarla in Midi France. I said, yeah. He said, think of the food. <laughs> <laughs> he knew what to say to get you there. Well, that did pique my curiosity, you know, and I had spent a little bit of time in France before that, and I had picked up some of the language, you know, I, I could get by at that point, and uh, so I went for it. And, and and then when we got to Sarla, we we had a, uh, uh, at, at Le Marie, uh, which is the town hall, the city hall, the town hall in this little 12th century village, and they had this little reception for us, and the mayor was there, and there was this portrait on the wall above the fireplace, and they explained to the, that that was uh, Fournier. And I said, who's Fournier? He said, that's Fournier. That's Gabriel Ferro, who Harvey Keitel plays in the movie. That was the name of Harvey's character in the movie. Right. It was based on a real person, Fournier, who was from that village. So these guys dueled over the course of, what, was it 20-some-odd years? 20-some-odd years, and it's a true story. It's and amazing. in fact, amazing. in fact, the story had been written up in some journal of the day, and Conrad had come across it. So he basically just took the story and fleshed it out and wrote it up as a short story and he changed the names and people assumed that it was a Conrad fiction, but no, it was actually a true story that had been in, in a journal from, from that time that he had come across. What a wild movie. Yeah. I've heard you say that Keitel has mellowed uh, uh, since then. You guys have stayed Harvey. friends over the years. Oh, yeah. No, I love Harvey. He's, he's one of our great actors yes, ever. Yes, I would say so. He's absolutely a, 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 a blistering talent, that guy. And, you know, that kind of gift, um, it's not uncommon that uh, one possessed of that uh, will uh, have a, a certain uh, uh, need to, to be true to their gift. And uh, and I would say that that was the case with Harvey certainly, and uh, and so he could be uh, meticulous and and uh, and uh, on a certain level kind of demanding, I guess, about about being as good as he could possibly be. Um, and uh, you know, you, you gotta give it up for that. 
Oh, he's great. He's oh, great. He's so watchable in everything. And fingers. Oh, everything. And he can be a pain in the ass at times. But, <laughs> but, you know, he's so um, intense um, in that movie. You're, you're, no, you're, but but you look at the work and you say, hey, man, okay, it's worth it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Tax- I have to recommend to our listeners to, what, he, to see the duelist. He was great in Taxi Driver. And, oh, oh, my yeah. gosh. Everything, everything he's been in. He's yeah. terrific. Everything. Mean Streets. I mean, you know, from the get-go. Absolutely. Yeah. Blue collar. You said, yeah. I. it may have been old men who said it to you, that um, you were, there was one part you played, and he really admired it, but he said, you're not going to win the award for this. Hmm. There was a part you played where the director said, you won't win the award because they won't see how hard you're working. Oh, I know what that, he's, he was talking about, he was talking about Will Rogers' Follies. When I, when I played Will Rogers in the musical on Broadway. Yeah. And it was actually, the person who said that to me was Tommy Toon, who directed the, the Oh, okay. The and, and when it came Tony time, I did get nominated. Yes. But Tommy tried to prepare me for the fact that, uh, you know, he said, listen, he said, um, all I can tell you, the, the highest compliment I can give you is that I know how hard you have worked to do this, but no one else will because it doesn't show because your work is invisible. And as a result, because people aren't going to see you working hard to give the performance, they're going to think that this just came easy for you. Because there's not a lot of outward acting going on. It's more of Well, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, and I wouldn't say it wasn't a showy part because it was a wonderful role. It was Mm -hmm. one of the great moments of my acting life Mm -hmm. that I got to play that part in that show and sing and say those words. And it was amazing. But, uh, what Tommy Toon said was, he said, you remind me a little bit in your acting of Fred Astaire. Wow. Who also never was given an Oscar. No, because no. Because everyone always looked at Fred and just thought, eh, that's just Fred. He's not, you know. What a compliment. Yeah, it looked yeah, like truly. it was no effort at all. It, correct. And I took that as the highest praise I could get from anyone as an actor was to be told that, so. Tell us about your friendship with Lee Marvin and and uh, a movie. Yeah, I, th- I assume you met on the movie, a movie that we like, Emperor of the North. Yeah, he was a good friend until he until he passed on. Um, Lee was an amazing guy, and uh, you know I auditioned for that part, and then I auditioned again, and then I auditioned again, and then I waited and waited and waited, and then my agent called and said, "Okay, so they want you to do a screen test." So I went down to 20th Century Fox and I did a screen test. And in those days, that meant exactly what it always used to mean. And they suited me up in the costume, and they had a little set, you know. And 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 Robert Aldrich, the director, directed me in this screen test. And it was shot with one of those gigantic old Mitchell BNC cameras that you see from the old photographs of movie making. Okay, they're, they're huge, right? <laughs> and. And that's not what we shot the film with, but that that screen test was shot with that. And then I waited again for, I think, about six weeks. And then I finally got the word, you got the part. And I was over the moon, absolutely over the moon. And they said, they want you to come down to Fox and uh, and uh, get, do wardrobe. So I went down there. I went to the wardrobe department and uh, followed directions. And I showed up there and Marvin was already there. And he was also doing his wardrobe. And he said, hey, kid. Uh, I said, Mr. Marvin, it's good to meet you. He said, yeah, congratulations, you got the part. And I said, yeah, yeah, I got the part. He said, well, you know, he said, every other actor in Hollywood hates your guts today. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah, that's cool. Uh, He said, so what are you doing? I said, "Uh, I'm just here for wardrobe. He said, no, I mean, after wardrobe, what are you doing? I said, no, no, I don't know. He said, well, let's get some lunch. And I said, okay. 
Lee Marvin is about and he that. walked me over to the 20th Century Fox commissary and he walked me in there. Man, I walked into the commissary with Lee Marvin. Yeah, that was amazing. And he introduces me around, and there's like serious people in there. I can't remember, but, I'll bet. you know, and he said, this is Keith Carradine, John's boy. He's going to play the part with me in this film. He just got this role, and it was amazing. I thought, wow. Then I show up in Cottage Grove, Oregon, where we shot the thing. We used the train up there that uh, there's, they've got a narrow-gauge railroad that Buster Keaton actually shot the general on. Wow. Oh it's that same God. train. Yeah. And so I show up there. I go, I show up on my first day's work on the set and it's a scene with Lee and he's there and his wife is sitting over, you know, and, and so I walk over and I say, hello, hi Lee. And, uh, and he kind of says, ah, and he sort of looks away. And I thought, well, that's weird. He was so nice back in the, you know, and I said, is that your wife? And he looked at me and said, why do you want to know? <laughs> and so he basically started browbeating me and I was so taken. I didn't know what to do. You know, I was, I, what was I, 22 or something? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, I just started laughing. And the more he browbeat me, the more I just laughed because I thought this, I, this can't be serious. This can't be, uh, I just kept laughing. I honestly, I didn't know what else to do. That was my knee jerk response was just to laugh. And that's how the day went on. And Aldrich was watching the whole thing. And he had this kind of wry smile on his face the whole time because he worked with Marvin over and over again. They were old friends, you know, and Ernie Borgnine. Ernie wasn't on the set that day. but uh, And then by the end of the day, Lee came over, you know, and he said, well, it was a good day, kid. You did good. Yeah, that's my wife. That's Pam. And, uh, and from that moment on, he was my best pal. And that? I think that that was just his test he wanted to test my metal and see if I could take it, you know? And the fact that I didn't get uptight, that I just kept laughing, eh, that was all he needed to know. You passed we the were, test. Yeah, we were friends from then on. And what was Ernest Borgnine like to work with? Oh, uh, he was just great. He was, what you see is what you get with Ernie. I mean, that's who he was, you know? Uh, obviously, when he played villains, that that wasn't the real Ernie. The real Ernie was a big, lovable bear of a man. You know, he was just a sweetheart. But he played great villains. Oh, by God, yeah. he was terrifying. Yeah. And in that movie, Including in he that picks movie. me up in that chair, yes. you know, it was, God, he was scary. Yeah. Did, did Aldrich have, I know you're a, Betty, a big Betty Davis fan. Did, did, Aldrich, well, yeah. did Aldrich have Betty Davis stories? You know, I don't remember him telling any. Uh. He had this big chair. And and he, and there was a tray that sort of folded. It was like a sort of an oversized director's chair. And he always had this giant, it looked like a gallon-sized jug of Diet Coke or something, you know, that he would drink all day. He was a heavy guy. And and on the on the uh, on the table that folded down, someone had meticulously used a, a, a wood-burning tool and had burned into that tabletop the title of every film he'd made up to that point. And there were a lot of them. Oh, yeah, sure. And he was a legend. Good ones. And, you know, he Good came ones. up through the ranks. Oh, yeah, he came up through the ranks. So he knew every job as though he'd done them all. He might have, in fact. I don't know that much about, you know, but I know he came up. And he would call crew people by their union number. Oh, he say, give me a local 246 over here. Give me a local. <laughs> no, it was, it I was love amazing. That. <laughs> yeah. And he had all these vehicles because at one point he had his own studio called the Aldrich Studios. And he had a bunch of uh, Land, Ro- uh, Land Rover Defenders, the classic. They were four-door, right? And uh, they were painted like uh, a deep uh, uh, forest green. And they all had these brass plaques on the doors that said, the Aldrich Studios, Swift, Sensible Cinema. Oh, love that. That's yeah. great. And, 
And you said you you were nominated for the Academy Award for your song. In Nashville, yes. And and you were convinced you weren't going to get it. Oh, I didn't have a prayer. I was up against uh, Diana Ross and the and the Motown machine, Barry Gordy. I mean, I, 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 there was no way. And she, she, her performance was live from friggin' Amsterdam. She was sitting in a in a in a. It was snowing, and there was a satellite hookup. And I thought, you know, <laughs> and, and and I'm sitting here alone on this stage, just me and my guitar. I thought this is, and I was terrified. By the way. I mean, you know, you're sitting in, in that room. It was at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion still in those days. And you look at that room full of people. And then you realize that in addition to them, which is, you know, uh, uh, that crowd, mm-hmm. then you've got a billion people all over the planet who are tuned into this thing. I mean, it was fairly terrifying, you know. And and just to get through the song without completely screwing it up, I thought was an accomplishment. Uh, I did wake, make one little mistake, but nobody knows that but me. Um, but you know, I, I I think I didn't think I had a prayer of winning that. Award. It's it's on YouTube. You, our, our listeners can see it. There's uh, uh, Angie Dickinson and Burt Bacharach. <laughs> wow. I was I was handed the award by Angie Dickinson, who to this day is is a pal. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. And your dad's there. He's, you you, yep. you 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 looked thrilled. Oh, it was so the only time I was completely stunned, and it was the only time he ever went to the Oscars. How oh, nice! Yeah. And and uh, people don't realize how much money and work it takes to get an Oscar. Like once you're nominated. <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah. That's another reason I did not expect <laughs> to win because I didn't participate in any of that. That's I had no publicist. I had no publicity campaign. There was no Oscar campaign for my song. Uh, it was really, uh, there was no push because nobody thought it had a chance. The uh, record company, ABC Records, that owned the soundtrack to Nashville, they didn't even, they had no intention of putting the song out because they didn't think it had any potential as a record. It was broken by a disc jockey in Buffalo, New York. He put it on the radio. He liked it. He heard it and he liked it and he played it one day and he got 150 phone calls in three minutes. There's what one of those stories, song? Gil. Yeah. We were, just talk- we were just talking about that. DJs with songs that don't have a chance and then there's a, in the old days. And there was a, in the old a, days. a DJ who takes a, a, falls in love with a song and says, ah, fuck it, I'm going to play it. I'm going to make a hit out of this song. And exactly. it happened. It could happen. And all of a sudden there was this demand and ABC Records, I mean, they had reluctantly put it out as a sync as a single, but um, they didn't sign me as an artist. And it was interesting because when the film screened in New York, Geffen saw it. David Geffen saw the movie and he called me up. It was, that was another one of those moments, right? I was in my house in Topanga. No, I'll never forget it. I was in my house in Topanga. Geffen calls up and I answered the phone. He says, Keith, I said, yeah. He says, David Geffen. I said, yeah, right. Who is this? You know, he said, no, 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 no. It's David Geffen. And I said, okay. He said, listen, I just saw your film, Nashville. I said, yeah. He said, I, I, I like your music. Do you want to make a record? And I said, sure. And that was how I got signed to Asylum Records by David Geffen. And we went in and started recording and we recorded our own version of I'm Easy. John Guerin was brought in. He was the drummer from the LA Express. He produced the record. Uh, he brought in all of his buddies from from the sort of modern jazz cats who were in LA. So they, they, they were all playing on my first record. People like... Uh, 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 Lee Rittenauer and, oh, sure. and Dave, Dave Grusin did all the keyboards and did all the horn arrangements. I mean, it was amazing the people that got brought in there. So here I had this single on Asylum and then the thing won the Oscar and you still couldn't get the record in a store because no one had distributed it because, you know, 
And then it just exploded. And all of a sudden I had two versions out there. I had the ABC single and I had the Asylum single. So to this day, the accounting of how many records were actually sold is confused by the fact that there were those two records. So I do not officially have a gold record. Oh, even though, it, oh. Even, though bad. even though it was a top 10 record. Because of a technicality. Well, yeah, yeah more yeah. than a technicality. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, you know, sheer boneheadedness. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because the guys from ABC, when the thing won the Oscar, they said, Keith, come, come make a record with us. I said, hey, you guys, Geffen already signed me. They said, oh, no. I said, you know, you guys didn't think, yeah. And I said, oh. And it was just, it was one of those moments, I, man. I remember you performing that, that song on variety shows. I remember seeing you do it on the Midnight Special. Ab- Ab- Bert yes, Sugarman's Midnight Special. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, hey, isn't, that, isn't that Keith Carradine on the Midnight Special? Helen Reddy was on that. Though. That's right. Helen Reddy, was, who's, who's standing next to you in the, uh, well, we'll get yep. to that later. <laughs> you know what I'm. Oh, you know what I'm oh, yeah, referring to. I know where to. you're going. I know where you're, one, one of my one of my real epics, man. I, I had to save that. it for the end. I'm particularly proud to be a part of that. One. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> and oh, you said a quote that stuck with me that Sir Ralph Richardson said about acting. In one of your interviews. Yes. I, I had a chance to meet Sir Ralph. Uh, I was in London. It was around the Nashville opening time. And I did a talk show, uh, which was, I believe, the uh, uh, the Hogan. What was that? Was that his name? Um, Tom Hogan? Wogan. Wogan. Tom Wogan. It, was it Wogan? Yeah. Um, and Ralph Richardson was also there. So I got to meet him. And I told him, I said, Sir Ralph, I, 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 I'm not even sure if he was knighted at that point. But anyway, I said, I'm actually coming. I had tickets to see him that night in the Pinter play No Man's Land that he was doing with Gielgud. And he said, oh, do come backstage, dear boy. I'd love to see you. Know, he says, oh, yes, if you, if you, do come say hello after the show. You know, so I made a point of doing that. And uh, 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 uh I got to sit with him in his dressing room after the show, went back and said hello. He poured me a glass of gin. That's what those guys drink. You know, uh, at one point, uh, um, uh, who, who was the, uh, the playwright? I can never think of his name now, but he wrote uh, an Inspector Calls. Um, anyhow, big, big guy. Must have weighed 350 pounds. And he came sweeping into the dressing room. And they said, what did you think? And he said, ah, well, you know, it's... It's not much of a play, really, but you've done the best you could with it. And then uh, Gielgud came in. And I, I can't believe I'm sitting here meeting these people and talking. I'm drinking gin with Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud. And then it came time to leave. He said, well, I guess we better shove off, eh? And, and, and we all went out the stage door. And I watched Ralph Richardson, who was then in his early 70s and was already starting to show signs of his Parkinson's. He had a little bit of a head shake when he worked at that point. And he walked out that door and walked down the steps and climbed onto his Norton motorcycle and rode off into the London night. Man, I'll never forget it. And one of the things he said uh, about acting was that he said, well, you know, he said, uh, great acting is really nothing more than overacting without getting caught. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I liked what you said about acting, Keith, that you, with, with strangers, of, you know, the crew on the set, that you have to kind of get past this idea See if you if if you remember saying this. No, I know exactly what you're talking you about. Yes. You're, you're doing something so childish. Exactly. No, it's mortifying when you think about it. I'm a grown man, and this is what I'm doing. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm standing here. I'm standing here playing make believe. I mean, this is what children do, and the beauty of it is that to be an adult and still be doing that is kind of wonderful and magical and amazing. But there is an element of mortification to me 
about that. And I've always felt that one of the things that is most important to accomplish is if you're going to be standing on the stage, it's a little different because there is a formality to that. There is a, 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 a sort of an ancientness to it. I mean, the, the, this is, we human beings have been doing this, telling stories to other human beings, and that's all it is really. And because of that sort of tradition of that, there is less of that sense of, of embarrassment about standing up there and doing that in the theater. But on a movie set, on some level, you've got the crew around, you've got whoever, and you're standing in front of a camera. And for me, the first thing that I had to overcome was that sense of kind of embarrassment about that this is what I'm doing. And to be able to sublimate that and and then give the performance and and sort of let go of that and and find some kind of sense of truth in what you're doing uh, believing in what you're doing to the extent that you will have others around you also believing it. Uh, that's the challenge. And now everyone has their own technique and their way of getting to that. But I've always said that the most difficult part of it for me was overcoming the sheer embarrassment of doing it in the first I've place. I've never heard an actor say that. It is so refreshing. <laughs> Gilbert, wow. you, you ever have, you've been, you've, Gilbert's been in dozens yeah. of movies. Do you ever have that feeling like I can't believe somebody's paying me to to, oh. to, act, to act out here or to, or to act a comedy, to act like an idiot? It, it, there are times Times, whether on stage or in a sh- or on TV, where all of a sudden of something light goes on in my head, and I go, "What the fuck am I doing right now?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm Gilbert, making faces, are... <laughs> and they're staring at me. You're, you're, you're no, picking you're, up you're, trays. You're talking about your stand up. You're doing stand up comedy. To me, that is absolutely the most terrifying thing imaginable. To me, uh, the, those of you who can do what you do, I stand in awe, man. I mean, you know, it's one thing to watch an accomplished music, musician who has mastered their instrument. And that is a wonderful, extraordinary thing to behold. But you understand how they got to that. You understand that there were years, hours upon hours of repetition, practice by rote doing that. What you do... I don't know how you train for that, man. And, and and to be able to stand up in front of an audience and do that and make us laugh and and and, and me and I'll go back to the aristocrats because I could not breathe watching you <laughs> tell that story. Oh, thank no, you. I was absolutely gasping, man. And, and that is to me, uh, it's as good as it gets, man. And it's also I can't imagine anything more absolutely stone terrifying to be doing. You know, because if you're standing up there trying to be funny and nobody laughs, what the fuck, man? Where, where do you go with that? You know, I, I, I guess you've never had that experience because you're oh, a funny Oh, I've dude, had man. it many times. <laughs> <laughs> you know. He does a thing in his act. Do you still do the thing with the trays? Oh, the two, yes. The, you know, the round bar trays. And he pick, right. puts them over his head and he does a Mickey Mouse impression. And at some point, I'm watching you do this at Caroline's. I'm thinking, does it occur to him? What the hell am I doing? Oh, I, I, that, you don't know how many times that pops into my head. What the fuck am I doing here? Well, apparently it's where you belong, man. So, you know. Keith, can I ask you a couple of quick questions from fans? Yeah. This yeah. is just a quick thing. We oh, do. two questions I have to ask you, but I think you already answered it. What were they? Yeah, Because your father didn't allow you on the set. Uh, it's not that he didn't allow us. He just didn't take us there very often. Yeah. A, 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 a few visits, well, but they were minimal. I, I need to know, because the other guy, 
I'm as as big a fan of as your father is Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. Have you ever met him? I did not meet him. When I went to the set of The Patsy, I got to meet Peter Lorre because wow. he was in that movie. Wow. I got to meet, and I'll never forget it. You know, he came walking up and I think I was as tall as he was and I was maybe 12, 10 or 12. He was a short guy. Yeah. But he came walking up and he said, Peter, I'd like you to meet a few of my tribe. And Peter walks up and he looks at us and he says, my, it is a tribe, isn't it? I mean, is a trippy dude, man. <laughs> And, and, and I got to meet Keenan Wynn. And I remember Keenan meeting, and I told Keenan when I worked with him on Nashville, I said, Keenan, you know, I met you when I was a kid. He said, you did? And I said, yeah, I came to the set of the Patsy, man. My dad brought us in and introduced us. You're in your, I'll never forget in your dressing room, you had this giant jar of dill pickles. That was the image that I came away from that set with. That and the fact that Jerry Lewis had a basketball court set up and he would shoot hoops all day. He loved to shoot hoops. Wow. So no Lon Chaney, but Peter Lorre. No Lon Chaney, sorry. Pretty good. Yeah. Get, get, pretty, Peter Lorre's pretty good. Give him oh, a, give him a, give very a, good. Give him a little taste of Peter Lorre. I'm putting him on the spot, Keith. Oh, jeez. Go ahead. Give him a little bit. He'll appreciate it. No, it's you who ruined it. You, it's your stupid attempt to bad. Kevin yeah. to found out how valuable it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gilbert, you have to learn this line. Okay. Because it's from it's from the great movie uh 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 um hang on uh it just went out of my head. Uh Beat the Devil. Beat the Devil. Oh sure, and, John and Huston. It was directed by John Houston and one of the screenwriter one of the, was John Houston and and uh uh was it James Truman Capote. Oh, Co- Truman, Capote. Truman Capote, and, right? And Robert Marley was in the yes, Green Street. Robert Marley, part. that's right. And there's a line when somebody mentions that we're running out of time, and Peter Laurie, you have to do this, Gilbert. He says, <laughs> he says no, no, you have to learn this line. Peter Laurie says, time, time, what is time? He says, the Italians squander it, the French hoard it, the Swiss measure it, no, the, the, the Germans measure it, the Swiss manufacture it, and the Americans say it's money. Wow. Isn't that a great line? That's great. You have to put that in the repertoire, Gil. Yes. Put, put it in the repertoire, man. It's deep. <laughs> who, who was the other person you wanted to ask him about? Uh, Lon Chaney oh, and... Uh, uh, that was... Was it Karloff? I know his yeah, dad oh, was friends Car- with... His Karloff? Friends with- yeah, never met Karloff. Wow. Yeah, I'm sorry. So what are we wasting time talking? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you even invited me. I've never met any of those let guys. Me, let, me ask you, let me ask you these quick. Uh, Paul Ekstrom wants to know, what's your favorite of your dad's films? Can you pick one? Of my dad's? I'd have to say Captain's Courageous. Okay, that's a good one. You know, although his performance in Grapes of Wrath, I think, is definitive. It's wonderful. But there is some emotional connection that I have to Captain's Courageous, and I'm not sure why that is, but I, it just has stuck with me since the first time I saw it. And Tracy in that film and my dad in that film. And in fact, I actually own and learned a bit uh, to play the hurdy-gurdy because of Spencer Tracy playing one in that movie. It's just, it's always been in my heart, that film. And one other quick one. This is from Bjorn Nesheim. Did, was the sneeze in The Duelists unscripted? No, that was scripted. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm happy to, that he asked because that meant he couldn't tell that it was fake. <laughs> That's a good sneeze, man. Yeah, very convincing. <laughs> I got to tell our listeners to definitely watch those movies. Oh, yeah. McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Duelists. And you yeah. said, I think that, I think it was Altman who said to you, he complimented you on your acting, and you said something like, it gave you the permission to be good. Well, Altman choosing me to begin with 
kind of gave me permission. I mean, that was a serious uh, validation, you know, and in this town, especially to have been selected by him and be deemed worthy, you know, by Robert Altman. Yes. But also when we were doing Thieves Like Us, he said to me at one point, and it was about two weeks into production, and I think it was when we were shooting the uh, the stuff at the little at the little shack that we all are holed up in with, and it's where I first meet Shelley Duvall's character, and and uh, he said, uh, "You're a you're a really good actor." He said, "I just want you to know that you're a really good actor," and that was it for me. I mean, I have never ever felt as though. Um, uh, I've never, I'm still trying to be good. What can I tell you? I mean, he, he told me that and I felt that it gave me permission to strive for goodness, for, for, for worthiness. Um, but I'm also, uh, listen, man, I'm a classic, man. I'm as full of self-doubt as the next guy. That's interesting. And I'm, I'm never satisfied with my work. When I watch my work, I loathe myself. Really? I see every, oh, I see everything wrong. I don't like the way I look. I mean, I'm a classic neurotic in that way, you know? So, but I do think that I'm at least healthy enough mentally to recognize that fact. <laughs> and healthy. And, yeah, go and when you say, when you watch your performances or just give one, are you uh, spending the rest of your life going, I should have done it the other way. Absolutely, don't you? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, listen, I look at films. If I go back and look at a film I did 20, 30 years ago, I, I, I can't, you can't help it. I think, oh my God, if only I had known then what I have learned since, you know, that I could apply to that work, you know? And the classic is, you know, you're on stage. I've done plays, you know, and you walk away from the play and six months later, you wake up one morning and go, ah, shit, that's how I should have done that. I mean, that's... That's every actor I know has that experience. I have to say, Keith, too, in looking at your films, you play a, you play a very likable sociopath. <laughs> in, in, Why, thank you. In uh, Thieves Like Us, uh, Tom in Nashville, you do you yeah. you 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 you're very good with with unlikable. Thank you. Well, you know what? Uh, that's and you're an such a likable thing. guy in real life. I'm what you, 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 you must access that. something. Apparently, there is uh, there is some reason why uh, you know, and uh, there are great actors who've said this. Uh, so I'm quoting them: is that every role that you play, you have to find uh, something that you love about that character. Even the most evil of characters, you have to find, you know, when I have played, the, 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 my approach is I just try to find the part of myself that, that uh, given the right circumstance, would be capable of that behavior. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to approach it. I mean, there are other actors who are far greater than I who, who might have uh, a deeper insight in terms of how they get to the truth uh, to make it, uh, you know, to make the audience believe what they're watching. But that's kind of my basic M.O., well, I watched you on uh, Rachel Ray, and I said to my wife, "This look at this, the most likable guy in the world. Uh, <laughs> and then I see thieves like us, you know, or even the yeah. character in An Almost Perfect Affair, who, if, if, fair to say, he's a bit of a narcissist. A bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then some. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you were playing a part in a movie, you said, where you you hated the character. That was Nashville. That's for Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. I didn't and, like that guy. And Yeah. And, and then... Uh, Altman said something about it. 
Well, I didn't like the guy, and I was uncomfortable playing the guy, and I wasn't feeling as though I was doing good work even. And and it was around the time we were shooting the the, the exit in sequence, and I went to Bob and I said, Bob, I'm not, I'm not I don't know I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I don't I, I I'm really unsure about this, and I just and he he wouldn't even talk to me. He said, Ah, oh, you're you're doing fine, kid, and he just walked away. He wouldn't entertain the conversation. The genius was that what I came to realize later was that he knew exactly what I was experiencing. He knew the problem I was having with playing that guy because I didn't like him. I didn't like having to be that guy. I thought, I don't want people to think this is who I am. So I was just immature enough still at that point to not be able to separate myself from what I thought was negative about the guy. So I just didn't like him. Well, the genius of Bob was he knew that and he let it be. And what you see in the movie is you don't see an actor who doesn't like the guy that he's playing. You see a guy who doesn't like himself. That's true. Yeah. And it's it's brilliant. Yeah. And I wish I could take credit for it. But no, man, I was just a pawn in his game. Because it was supposed to be Gary Busey and then he... Well, he originally to, Gary yeah. Busey was caught, cast in that role. And yeah. then Gary dropped out to go to a pilot with, uh, it was called... Uh, Texas Wheelers. Texas Wheelers, yeah. yeah with uh, Jack Elam. Jack Elam. And um, so when Barry, uh, when uh, Gary dropped out, they moved me into that role, which, um, you know, I mean, you, you see Gary playing that role and it's kind of a slam dunk. You go, oh, of course. You don't see yeah. a nice guy actor necessarily playing that part, but that's what, give, that's, that's what gives it dimension, I think. Exactly. And Bob, you know, and he was kind of a mad genius, man. He knew exactly what he was doing. So smart. I just want to quickly ask you about some of the Rudolph pictures, too, and talk about yeah. talk about playing weirdos and people on the fringe <laughs> is Mickey and Choose Me. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> another part, and I'm thinking, He's okay. a compulsive liar. He's <laughs> a compulsive liar until you find out he's telling the truth. But is he? It's such a boy, and boy, is is that a wild movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a good time doing that. People I mean, have Bob, to track I, that uh, down. And Alan came to New York. I was doing Foxfire. I was just finishing up Foxfire with Human Jesse, and and uh, Alan came to New York. Said, "Listen, uh, you know, Teddy Pendergrass. He had this terrible accident, and Shep Gordon really wants to give him a boost, and and he's got this great song called Choose Me.' And so Shep basically said, take this song and make a movie out of it. And so, what do you want to do?'" Because I want you to be in it. And I say, oh, wow, okay. Well, hey, man, just let me do everything that nobody lets me do. Let me play that part that nobody will let me play, you know, where the guy's like, he's handy, he can fight, he's all this stuff, you know, because I'm like a skinny dude and nobody ever thought of me that way, you know. I said, let me let me do all that stuff. And he said, okay. And that's what he wrote. And then we went and shot it for like, a, a, I don't know, a, a shoestring. We shot yeah. it in downtown LA. We, I think we shot for 24 days, 23. Something like uh, 28 days. Anyhow. He's a bit of a sex addict, too. Who? Uh, yeah, well, the, yeah. The character. No, no, he's not a sex addict. Well, what? He, well, he's, uh, let me, let me, I beg okay, to differ. Correct he, he's, a, he's a, he's a love addict. A love addict. Ah. Okay. <laughs> he's a romantic. <laughs> okay, I got it. He's a romantic. And, and what he says is that he never kissed a girl he didn't want to marry. That's true. Now, that's about as romantic as it can be. That's true. So that ain't about sex. That's really about love. And that's one of the things I love about Alan is that's, that's who he is. He's an absolute, uh, deep, deeply romantic guy. And, and f- that's what he responds to. And that's what he wants to look at and tell stories about. Fascinating filmmaker. And, yeah. and, and we've he, just made another movie, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Ray yeah. and Helen. Yeah, Ray meets Helen. Yeah, Ray meets Helen. It's coming out. It's coming out May Oh, 4th. that's great. Yeah. I was saying, Frank and I were talking about all the people you worked with. And one of them is an actor who I thought 
would have been the ideal guest for this podcast. Who's that? Elisha Cook, Cook Jr. Jr. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I've never worked with Elisha, but, you know, obviously my dad. And, uh, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was amazing. You know, the people you worked with, and we were, you were talking about it. I mean, you, you, you're marveling that you met Sir Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud. But by the time you're, what, 23, 24, 25, you've already worked with Johnny Cash, Kirk Douglas, uh, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin. Uh, who, who am I leaving out? Then I worked uh, with Finney uh, Warren, on the Duelist. Warren, huh? Warren Beatty, Julie Christie. Warren Beatty, Julie Albert Christie, Finney on the Albert Duelist. Finney, for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amazing. My, my list of legends, man. I, I, I keep compiling them. I worked at... I can't believe the people I've had the chance to work with. What about Rod Steiger? Somebody we talk about oh, a lot on yeah. this show. Rod the Steiger, Vanessa Redgrave. I worked with Richard Widmark. I mean, oh, know. we love him too. Yeah, amazing now, people. Now Steiger, I heard, yeah. was one of those people that could be a little crazy in preparing for his parts. That's what I'm told. I have to say, when I did Ballad of the Sad Cafe with him and Vanessa Redgrave and uh, Cork Hubbard and myself and. Uh, uh, he was a, an absolute gent. He was oh, great. That's nice. Yeah. Could not have been sweeter. That's and nice. then he came and saw me in Will Rogers because I did Will Rogers right after that. And he came came to the show and came backstage and could not have been more complimentary. And he was just a sweet guy. How about Jack Warden? Oh, the best. Jack Warden. Oh, damn it. Sorry. sorry. Hang on. Hang on. Gilbert's, fan, Gilbert's phone's going off, Keith. We'll yeah, cut this part out. This is, is, is about the fifth is time. Do you, can, you connect, <laughs> can you connect to the, uh, to the afterlife? Jack man? Warden. Did you get a call from Jack? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that'd be a magical phone, man. If you could, I, you know. I got to be in two movies with Jack Warden. Yeah. I never did a scene with him, but I met him. He was such a... Great I worked actor. with him twice. I did a television movie that was, the, I think, the sixth remake of The Three Godfathers. It was Jack Warden was in it and Jack Palance. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Was that The Godchild? Yeah, yeah The Godchild. Exactly. Right. Frank, you're good, man. You're good. You know, you know your stuff. I watched I'm them all. Do a lot of, oh, yeah, you sure do, you did. Do a lot of research. <laughs> oh, my God. What I could what find on of, YouTube. What a waste of brain cells, man. <laughs> You don't have to actually watch them all. All you have to do is all you have to do is read a little bit and be able to talk about it, right? And what was Jack Palance like? He was he was um, impenetrable. Yeah, yeah. You know, listen, man. I mean, he'd been at it for uh, how long by that time? And he was just he was out there doing this movie and making a buck. You know? Yeah. And he was, he, it wasn't that he walked through it. I mean, he was there and he was good, but he was also, Jack Palance was scary, man. <laughs> he was. <laughs> you know, he was scary. I mean, you look at that performance in Shane, which to me is one of the great movies of all time. It's on my list of, you know, all time greats. Um, his performance in that is absolutely absolutely, riveting. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. Speaking of scary performances. And he had that laugh, you know, we go, <laughs> <laughs> what, what about Robert Mitchum? You made Maria's Lovers. Mitchum, Robert Mitchum. yeah. Anything? Mitchum, the first time I met Mitchum, I actually went up to Chama, New Mexico. Davey was shooting a Western up there called The Good Guys and the Bad Guys that Burt Kennedy was directing. And Mitchum was in it, and uh, George Kennedy and uh, uh, and Davey, you know, was playing one of the young bad guys. Uh, his character's name was Waco. People would call him Wacko, and he'd say, don't call me Wacko. Um, anyhow, uh, and Mitchum was there, and I remember sitting with him the first time I met him, and he sat there, and he was great, man. He sat and told stories about you know, smoking ganja on the back of an elephant in Africa. <laughs> he liked he liked the weed. Oh, Robert he Mitchum, was a pothead from way back. Yeah, he, we heard, he did time, man. He did six of months for, for pot possession. Yeah, we've heard that. 
Quickly, uh, Ned Beatty, Alan Garfield, uh, Henry Gibson. Amazing. Any stories Amazing. about these great names? All of them. They're just all great people. I mean, you know, uh, every one of them is so gifted. Henry, uh, his son John, and I drove back from Nashville in in, uh, in my Land Cruiser. I had driven down there in my in my seventy four FJ, which I still have, by the way. Uh, and I'd driven that down to Nashville, and I was driving back, and I was going to like pick up antiques driving across the country. And and Henry and Lois, their son John, was I think seventeen or eighteen. And uh, they said, John would, I said, absolutely, come along, man. And, and so John and I drove across country together and, you know, stopped and picked up. I bought a, an antique cherry wood trestle table in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I stopped there to visit my friend Gaylord Sartain, you know, the wonderful. Gaylord Sartain, yeah. yeah. He's in Choose Me. He's the car, he's the car yes, dealer. He is. Well, he was in Nashville, too. That's right. Yep. Yep. He turns, you know, Gaylord Sartain. As soon as I show him your picture, show, oh, yeah. show you his picture, you'd, you'd recognize brilliant. him immediately. A brilliant, a really brilliant comedian and a wonderful painter. He's a very interesting cat. And how about Powers Booth that we just lost? Yeah, Powers, man. Ah, uh, too soon. Too that, soon. That was a movie I remember I recommended on the podcast. Which one? Southern, Southern Comfort. Southern, Southern Comfort. Comfort. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, a good one. Yeah. Walter Hill, yeah. yeah. Very. That was my second, that second time out with Walter. First time was the Long Riders. And then he came to me with Southern Comfort and... Uh, and he brought Powers in on that, and Fred Ward. I mean, we had an amazing group of people. Ryan James, who plays a Cajun in it. I love that actor, too. Brilliant, man. And uh, we shot it in Shreveport. Uh, we have a great, great love of character yeah. actors on this show, yeah. Keith. Well, you know. The guys who do the work in the, in the trenches. Yeah. He, and yeah, Southern Comfort's one of those films that keeps you on edge. Very good. It's a great, it's a wonderful, and it's it's a Vietnam allegory. I mean, yeah. you know, David David Geiler had written that as a, as a way to speak to what that experience was, and you know, it's a wonderful metaphor. You got a bunch of National Guardsmen in a place they do not understand, and they're armed with blanks. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about the great Sam Fuller. Can you tell us anything? Wow. Oh, amazing. Well, I think you're the first guest ours. we've had out that. of 200 that work with Sam Fuller. Really? Oh, you got to get my brother Bobby on. Bobby okay. did the big red one with we'll Sam. We'll do that. Yeah. Um, uh, Sam Fuller, man. Yeah, we did this movie in Portugal. It was all night shooting, like seven or eight weeks of night shooting. It was called Street of No Return. And uh, it was a classic sort of noir story. I play this singer who gets uh, tied in with the wrong woman and uh, and her her organized crime boyfriend slits my throat. And so that's the end of my singing career. And I wind up, you know, with this sort of a croak of a voice and I'm living on the street and, you know. And we shot it in Portugal and Sam Fuller, you know, was, uh, directed it. And, uh, you know, he was, he was toward the end of his, of his, uh, uh, potency, I mm-hmm. guess, for lack of a better word, but he still had the knowledge, you know, and and uh, he was great, amazing, and uh, unforgettable. And he ate cigars. He put a giant stogie in his mouth in the morning. He never lit it, and at the end of the day, it was gone. <laughs> he would chew on that thing great. all day, and by the end of the day, there was no cigar left. He had never smoked it. He just ate them. <laughs> fantastic. Tell, tell us, I found this interesting, Keith. Uh, what's a golfer's part? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the, that the part you, know, you play on Madam Secretary? <laughs> yeah, I've got the golf. You know, I used to play a little bit of golf. I started too late to be any good at it. It's a completely ridiculous game if, uh, you know, 
you know, a, a good walk spoiled, as Mark Twain says. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's the role that you have on a TV series, which is, I guess, how you would describe the role I have now, where you're not in every shot, you're not in every scene, you're not even in every episode, but you're there just enough to pay the bills. And then the rest of the time you have off, but you don't have, you can't do another job because you've got that job. You're committed to that job. So what are you going to do? Well, I guess I'll play golf. Have you ever heard that? Have you heard that term? No. The golfer's part? No. I love that. That's excellent. <laughs> and my wife and I absolutely loved Fargo. And oh, thanks. loved you yeah. and Allison Tolman together. Thank you. Thank you. What great that television. And Noah, Wal- television. Noah Hawley is some kind of mad genius. He is a mad genius. Absolutely. He channeled the Coen brothers. It's, it's kind of weird. And so completely did he channel them that, you know, they read the script and then they went, did we write this? You know? I mean, I'm making that up, but basically they did not have to put their name on that show, uh, you know. Of course. Um, and, and they agreed to it because they thought it was such an accurate reflection of their sensibility. It more than style. does the movie justice. Truly. Yeah. I mean, it's like he took the movie and then took off from there, you know. I'm going to make Gilbert watch it. <laughs> and you also got to work with your daughter. We don't want to leave out wow. mentioning Martha Plimpton. I did. You got to do Raising Hope. I finally got to do an episode of Raising Hope. It took years for me to do Martha. <laughs> years. I've been trying for years. Listen, my daughter Martha Plimpton is a force of nature. She is funny. I think she's one of the giant gifts in our industry. She's amazing. Her 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 talent, her theatrical talent, her the her work in films. She's an amazing singer. Uh, she's extraordinary. She's a great deadpan and, but, comic on that show. And a great deadpan comic. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and I, I've been waiting for years to uh, to be able to stand on a movie set with her and learn from her. And she finally gave me the chance. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. So before we let him go, yes. I want to torture him. By bringing oh, up Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts. Ah, <laughs> ah, hey, man. Yes. Are you kidding? I'm in good company. <laughs> look, at that, look at that group standing on the bleachers at the end of that. I think I was standing next to, I was standing next to Carol Channing. Well. Singing, singing the Beatles. I'm standing with Carol Channing singing the Beatles. By the way, 50th anniversary. Uh-huh, <laughs> that movie uh-huh. is 50 years old. This One year. of those infamously... Wow. No, it can't be 50 years old because I'm only 68. I was in my 20s 19, when I did it. So. Oh, I'm, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's 40 years old. 19, 1978. I missed That I would believe. That was one of those movies you watch where you go, didn't anybody making this go, hey, you know, I think this is pretty bad. Can I, can <laughs> I, can I share something with you okay, guys? Is, please. Nobody's, nobody's listening. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, Trust me. <laughs> I've, I've never actually seen it. Well. Yeah. Well, I I saw parts of it, and you didn't miss anything. Well, you know, your scene. (laughs) (laughs) But I did did see, I caught the clip of the end. It's on YouTube. So I did see that moment of myself standing there, uh, sort of bouncing up and down and singing. (laughs) You're standing next to Helen Reddy in front of Frankie Valli. In front of Frankie a, Valley, a, and, and, and I'm just behind, I think, Carol Channing? Just or? behind Carol Channing. <laughs> and, yeah. and here's my favorite. Right behind you to your right is Dame Edna. <laughs> oh, jeez. Right. Oh, my God. That's right. I forgot yeah, about Dame Edna. Barry Humphreys.
yeah. you know, you're a musician. The yeah. pe- the musical chops of the people that are in that thing. Doctor John is in it. Yeah, Del Shannon, Donovan for Christ's sake. Doctor uh, John, uh, Curtis Mayfield, and Wilson Pickett. Not bad. And Tina Turner. You heard that Doctor John story? He did a movie. I think with, I think Tom Waits told me this. I think they did a movie called Big Rock Candy Mountain or something like that. That sounds Maybe familiar. I got it wrong. Anyhow. They were talking, and, and you know, as as will happen on a set, somebody started talking about acting, and somebody got on the subject of method acting, and Doctor John said, "Well, I guess you'd have to call me a methadone actor." <laughs> <laughs> How did you wind up doing that thing? Were you on the set? Did they just say come down and? No, they just called people's management, uh, whatever agents, and then just, just gathered as many people as they could. They wanted this bleacher full of you know recognizable faces, I guess, and at that point. I was, I had become a known entity. So there I was. You Did know? you schmooze? I mean, you're only a couple of spots from George Burns. Yeah, I don't, you know, I might have, I don't know. I, you know, I don't remember that much about the day. I just remember that there was a, a there was a, a, a kind of a surreal atmosphere to it. It was really weird. Yeah. Well, you, I've heard you say you're proud to be involved in one of the great inept moments in pop culture history. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah I, I'm actually very proud because of the company I was in. Oh, my God. I mean, if you're going to be in, in something that is that notoriously, that, 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 that notoriously misses the mark, you want to be standing on bleachers with a crowd like that. <laughs> Carol Channing <laughs> and George Burns. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild yeah. that they managed to scare all those people up. There's some genuine uh, legends there. And, and scare would apparently be the word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, and this is a while ago, Keith, but it connects to one of our previous guests, and that's Norman Lear, oh, Norman. Who, who we had here. And I want to direct, and you did this eight years ago or, or nine years ago, but I want to direct people to check out Born Again American. On, yes, Norman online. came to me. I was at, we actually met at a New Year's Eve party out of James Keach's house, and uh, I was uh, James had a guitar hanging on his wall in his studio that I pulled off and was playing. It was a beautiful old Gibson, um, and I wanted to, you know, and it was a nice guitar, and, and uh, in the course of that, uh, I was playing a song I had written, which I refer to as my geezer protest song, because yeah. I wrote it's this It's a Pete Seeger song. kind of thing. Well, it was a, I wrote a protest song in, in 2006, about the time, because I thought we were headed for the abyss. You know, little did I know how much farther down yes. the hole it would <laughs> yes. go. But I wrote this song then. Uh, called uh, 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 Orphans of Oblivion, and uh, and it's and I referred to it because I said I'm too old to be writing protest songs, man. I'm you know I was already then in my in my fifties, you know, and I said so I'm going to call this geezer protest, and I had sung that song, and Norman had walked into the room while I was singing it, and he introduced himself. I'd never met him, you know, and he said that did you write that? And I said yeah. He said I want you to write a song for me, and I said okay. And he told me about this movement that he was, you know, on, you know, he's very political, he's sure. very progressive. Yes. And, and, and uh, you know, he went around the country with that copy of the Constitution. He sure did. Yeah. Uh, he's a really amazing guy. And I said, absolutely. What is it? He said, I have the title. And I said, what's the title? And he says, it's called Born Again American. And I said, okay. And he basically told me what he wanted the song to do, what he wanted it to speak to, the points he wanted it to make. So it was the only time I've ever sat down and written a song kind of on assignment with a very strict set of guidelines. And I'm, I'm kind of proud of, of what we came up with, you know. And what they made of it with it, the organization yes. playing for change got all these yes. musicians around the country yep. at, at these iconic locations like Mount Rushmore and the St. Louis Arch. To, it's, it's really quite moving. And I wrote it in a kind of a classic 60s folk style. It was an homage to Dylan, frankly. 
and uh, blowing in the wind and songs like mm-hmm. that. So it's a, I play it in a finger picking style, and 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 the chords are evocative of that. And uh, so I wanted to speak to that at the same time. And then, uh, you know, we wrote very specifically to the American condition, the American experience. And Norman, what he was really wanting to do was he wanted, he, he, he wanted to take the notion of patriotism back for all Americans, rather than that being a word that is strictly applied to the right, that you can be a lefty and also be a patriot. Absolutely. He know? is. Yeah. He's, he's one for sure. Well, I want to direct our listeners to that Born Again American online and look, look for it. It's a very touching piece of work. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you. We have anything else to torture this man oh, with? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. <laughs> oh, let me see. I can't think of anything. I'm out of bullets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we've covered just about well, everything. You know, if, you're, if you're out of bullets, you throw the gun, man. <laughs> that, yeah, that was in every Superman. That's oh, right. Oh, oh I got one. I got a good one. Doing Love American Style with your pop. Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay, you actually dug that one up, huh? Listen, <laughs> I did that actually for my pop. I mean, he was going to do that, and it was the concept of, you know, uh, it was a flashback to uh, this couple. So here they are in their later years, and then it flashes back to the same couple 50 years before, 40 years before, and uh, Dad thought it would be interesting if I were to play him, you know, 40 years younger. And uh, Love American Style was not something that at that point in my career I would have dreamt in a million years that I would do, that I would want to do. Uh, It was certainly not what you would call a good career move. (laughs) But, but, you know, sometimes you do things out of love, man. And uh, I love my dad. And uh, he wanted that to happen, so I did it. So it's a nice memory. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't you guys do, was it, was you, you, David, and Robert just did a fall guy together? We did. Uh, yeah, we appeared on the Fall Guy. Actually, Dad did the Fall Guy, uh-huh. and it was a Halloween episode, which was why they had him on there because of his horror film, you know, Legacy. Sure. And it was Halloween, uh, and uh, Davey and Bobby and I decided we'd surprise the old man and show up on the set. And they were up for that, and they were interested in that, and they wanted to make some sort of a publicity deal out of it. So they they kept it a secret, and we surprised Dad, and it was sweet. That's nice. What's coming yeah. up? Keith, I know you're still you're still doing Madam Secretary, doing Madam Secretary, uh, and I've got uh, Ramey Tillen is is going to come out May fourth. Alan Rudolph, uh, Alan Rudolph, uh, we have once again got together and made a movie for nothing, because uh, that's what we do. You and Sandra Locke, yep, yeah, yep, Sandra Locke, amazing, and uh, Keith David's in it. It's it's a wonderful wonderful group of people. Yeah, Jennifer Tilly, yeah, you are busy. I, I, I need to stay, stay busy, you know, because, uh, otherwise I'll die, man. (laughs) (laughs) You, you, will you come to New York and do some more stage so we can meet you in person? Absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't get to see you guys today. I'm actually going to be in New York this Saturday, but you know, this was the date that worked out for all of us. So I'm afraid we had to do it this way, but, uh, I'd love to talk to you guys again. You're the best. Oh, this was, this was an absolute uh, special experience for us, Keith. And you're one of those guests that just brings it. Well, thanks, man. What do you think? Uh, And and, you uh, you didn't leave me any choice. I I will say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, be, before my phone rings again, <laughs> I, I should start wrapping up this show. You should see him live when you're in New York, by no, the way. That's what I want to do. In fact, when are you gigging next? Tell him. Uh, you guys I, can oh, there, uh, I think I'm doing Caroline's. On the 29th, you're yeah. at Caroline's. 
29th of March? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when, when's your next gig in April? Because I'm not going to be back there until after the 31st. Ooh, oh, we'll God, f- if I don't have my date book in front of me, we'll make I don't it, know. We'll make it work. You really should see him live, uh, Keith. It's an experience. You know, have your people call my people. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and let me know when I can catch Gilbert. You won't by, be sorry. By my people <laughs> oh, with Jews. <laughs> now tell me how great I am again before we get off the air. The aristocrats, Gilbert Gottfried, gold standard. No one has topped that. No one ever will. It was a moment of sheer genius. How about that? Thank you. I'm going to direct That's him. That's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to direct you to YouTube. See if you can find Gilbert in the Bob Saget roast. Oh, God, that has to be excruciating. You, yes, I will, <laughs> I will look for that. It is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Well, well, we've been talking to the son of Baron Latos. <laughs> and Herman Munster's boss. Yes, the son of Mr. Gateman. Oh, that's right. Yes. And a man who played both uh, Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And he was Dracula in Dracula Meets Billy the Kid. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. <laughs> and you know who else was in that? Who? Dobie Carey. Oh. Yep. <laughs> You gonna I wish I'd known that the last time I saw Adobe. I didn't realize that. He was a friend, you know? You going to do any more work with T? I know you're a TCM guy, too. You going to do any more work with them? I loved your Western introductions. I am, actually. I, they just uh, got in touch, and I'm, I'm going to do an evening with uh, with uh, Mr. Mankiewicz. We're going to oh, introduce, uh, yeah, we're working on that now. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to happen. It'll be in the near future, and I'm going to, we're going to pick four films, and I'm going to talk about them and introduce them, and, uh, you know. Terrific. Yeah. I, yep. I worked with Robert Osborne. He got to pick four. Uh, he was a sweet man. Yeah, Yo, darling, he was, darling man. Yeah. He, we had him on the show. He was one of those guests. You My just gosh, the knowledge click he on had. The mic and <laughs> a gentleman, yeah. a real gentleman. No, no, he, was, he was a really good guy. And my God, encyclopedic knowledge of Yes, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Keith, this was a wonderful trip down memory lane for us. Thanks, you guys. We're for so me thrilled too. you came. Me hey. too. So we have been talking to the great Keith Carradine. Thank you, Keith. Before Gilbert's phone goes off again. <laughs> <laughs>